If you have a Bible, we're going to be in the book of Exodus, Exodus chapter 2, if you want to turn there. That's where we're going to be. Uh, Wags, it is, it's great to have you back, a more seasoned and experienced worship leader. You look like it. That's great. I know. I like that. I like that. So we've been uh, sporadically going through the series uh, from the book of Exodus, talking about the God of Moses. If you haven't been here for all of them, that means you're like every other person in the room. So don't worry about that. We're just going to pick it up and go for it. So Exodus 2. Uh, let's pray one more time. God, help us to be present and to be available for the God who is going before us and the God who is with us right now. Help us to be available for whatever you have to speak to us and give us ears to hear. We pray this in your name. Amen. Okay, I want to start off by showing you uh, this video clip of a gentleman who has gone above and beyond his wife's vacation. Not only did he watch the kids, but while she was gone, he spent $60,000 renovating the kitchen and he is surprised, and she is surprised, and he gets this great response from his wife, and let's watch it right now. The island, look at this, two coffee pots, everything she always wanted. She's been away for a week on vacation, and she should be coming in any time we saw the car pull in. Hey, here she comes, here she comes. All right, here she comes. Let's see the reaction. Okay, guys, get ready. What do you think? I don't like that color. <laughs> what? No, I don't like the color. What color? It's like puke yellow. <laughs> the walls? <laughs> I got you your two stoves. It's two stoves. <laughs> I said that I really want something nice. Like, like... And that's like dumb. Okay, I spent 60000 on this. You didn't even change a freaking light bulb? <laughs> Seriously? Seriously? <laughs> Get out. That's not the reaction I was hoping for. Look. There's an ice maker. It's a freaking ice maker right here. But you have pica. You can eat that all day. Got the cute little cubes. Dude, on. I said, this is stupid. I like at the end. He's like, but there's an ice machine. But there's a. Okay. So the guy spent $60,000, redoes the whole kitchen, assuming it's not a fake video, and then I'm a complete idiot for thinking it's real. But assuming that's not the case, the guy spends $60,000, gives her the kitchen of what he believes to be her dreams, and she says, this is stupid. Can you imagine that? That, that? That's the only reason I'm not redoing my kitchen this weekend when Lindsay's going out of town, just for that possible reaction. But that's the exact opposite reaction. Like, if you do that for your significant other, for anyone, you expect them to be excited and grateful and gracious. Even if the color is a little bit off, you should be thinking, wow, this is such a gift. And she said, instead she goes, this, hey, this is stupid. The book of Exodus, the story of God, like delivering Israel, God sends them the person who is going to lead them out of the Exodus, and they basically give God this response. Oh, that's stupid. That's stupid. Don't quote me on that, but that's exactly what's going on. Exodus 2. Let's pick up in verse 10. When the child, this is Moses, when the child grew up, she brought him to Pharaoh's daughter, and she took him as her son. She named him 
Moses because she said, I drew him out of the water. Now, one day after Moses had grown up, he went out to his people and saw their forced labor. He saw an Egyptian beating the Hebrew, one of his kinfolk. He looked this way and that and seeing no one, he killed the Egyptian and hid him in the sand. Great story for the kids. When he went out the next day, he saw two Hebrews fighting. And he said to the one who is in the wrong, why do you strike your fellow Hebrew? He answered, who made you a ruler and judge over us? Do you mean to kill me as you killed the Egyptian? Then Moses was afraid and thought, surely the thing is known. So Moses has grown up with a silver spoon in his mouth. He's living in Pharaoh's house. He becomes an adult. He sees one of his brothers being wronged. And so he takes action. One scholar calls this proleptic divine justice, which I'm not smart enough to know what that means. But what I think he's trying to say is this is him doing what God wants him to do somehow. He thinks he's helping his people. And in turn, they fold their arms and say, this is stupid. Who, who are you? to do this for me? Who made you in charge? What are you doing? So Moses was upset. He was scared. He didn't know what to do. And so we pick back up in verse 15. When Pharaoh heard of it, he sought to kill Moses, but Moses fled from Pharaoh. He settled in the land of Midian and sat down by a well. The priest of Midian had seven daughters. They came to draw water and filled the troughs to water their father's flock. But some shepherds came and drove them away. Moses got up and came to their defense and watered their flock. How romantic. When they returned to their father, Ruel, he said, How is it that you have come back so soon? They said, An Egyptian helped us against the shepherds. He even drew water for us and watered the flock. He said to his daughters, Where is he? Why did you leave the man? Invite him to break bread. At least become friends on Facebook. Moses agreed to stay with the man, and he gave Moses his daughter Zipporah in marriage. She bore a son, and he named him Gershom. For he said, I have been an alien residing in a foreign land. And after a long time, the king of Egypt died. The Israelites groaned under their slavery and cried out, out of slavery. Their cry for help rose up to God. So let me tell you about a guy from my high school named Shane, Shane Richards, which I hope he doesn't for some reason listen to the podcast because that would make the story really awkward for me. But Shane, as a freshman in high school, started varsity on the soccer team, which no freshman in my high school started varsity on anything, but Shane Richard started varsity on the soccer team as a freshman. He was extremely talented. He played goalie his freshman year. His sophomore year, he convinced the coaches that he wanted to play in the field. And so he was a very good soccer player. His junior year, I believe he was all state. Best soccer player school had. And the football coaches recognize this tall kid has got a great leg. So guess what? Let's have him on the football team to be our kicker. And so his junior year, he's an all-state soccer player, and he's kicking for the football team. He's doing a great job. He's great in both sports. The problem is the soccer players have kind of grown tired of Shane. He kind of wears people down. The soccer players didn't like him. He was alienated from the soccer team, even though he was the best player the school had seen in years. He was all-state. And so the weirdest thing happened is all-state soccer player, his senior year, didn't even play soccer. He was just the kicker on the football team. Why? Because that was the only place people welcomed him. They go, why would a soccer player be welcomed on the football team? What does it say really about the soccer team? That's weird. When the Israelites heard this story years later and they say, Moses had to go marry a foreigner, they go, Why? Why does he have to go marry someone who's not one of our own people? 
Now, in that part of the Israelite story, there is this fear of the outsider. And so they were very insular. Before stories like the story of Ruth, which is a story that says people from the outside can be good. And before stories like Jonah, which is a story that says God loves even the outsider. In those days, it was just insiders. And so they didn't think about marrying anyone different from their own people. And so for Moses, their leader to go marry someone out there is the greatest sign that he is not welcomed. He is not accepted by his own people. He's like a soccer player being on the football team because he has no other friends. And this is a reoccurring thing, a reoccurring theme in the story of Moses. Is that not only are the Israelites rejecting God and rebelling against God, but they're rejecting the deliverer that God sent them. They're like the wife who just folds her arm and says, this is stupid. We don't want him. And it's not about Moses. It's really not about Moses. It's about the God of Moses. Because these people are not just rejecting him. They're rejecting God. And it's a story that's told over and over again. Once Moses gets the Israelites outside of Egypt, and they're in front of the Red Sea, and they don't know how they're going to get across, what do they say to Moses? They say, we, sh- we should have just died in there. And then when they get into the wilderness, they say, where's the water? Where's the food? Where's the water? They're always complaining. Folding their arms and going, this is stupid. We don't want you. Because it's not really about Moses. It's about the God of Moses that they're rejecting. The funny thing is, Moses, at the end of this story, he's working as a shepherd. Which is kind of a metaphor for what he's supposed to be for the Israelites. He's supposed to be the one shepherding them. But they're just going astray. They don't want anything to do with him. Because they don't want anything to do with God. And see, this is a story that's really old. Thousands of years old. Israelites rebel against God and the one that God sent to deliver them. It's an old story, but it's a story that's so trite. It's so told over and over again because it happens over and over again to us. This is the same story that we live in. So you've all heard the the story. Uh, There's a big flood and a woman sees the flood is coming. You actually might have seen this really happen in your neighborhood a few weeks ago. There's a big flood, and so the lady sees that the water is rising, and she hears the warnings over the radio, and she sees on the TV, everyone says, get out, get out, get out. And the woman says, no, I'm not going to go anywhere because God's going to save me. And so the waters continue to rise, and the warnings continue to go out, and she continues to ignore them. First, the firefighter man, firefighter person, drives up in his truck, says, woman, you need to leave. And she says, no, 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 God's going to save me. And you know what happens next. She goes on a roof. And eventually the waters start to come up to the top of the roof. And she says, I'm staying here. And then a person in a helicopter flies over and says, lady, you've got to leave. And she says, no, I'm waiting for God to deliver me. And the story ends up how? She never leaves. And she gets to heaven. She says, God, how come you didn't deliver me? And God says, I sent you all those warning signs, all those people. Why does the story work? Why is that story told over and over again? Because we know deep down inside there's something in us that is always ignoring the warnings. There's something inside of us that's always making us miss the call to be saved. There's something inside of us like a broken cart that always veers off course. So there's so much language we hear in the news, on TV, popular culture about how we need to be afraid of what's outside of us. Ever since 9-11, our country's attitude towards people outside of our country is, has changed. 9-11 changed us as a people. And so we have this great suspicion and fear of terrorists. 
And we act as though that is the biggest worry that our country has. Like that is the best way for someone to destroy us, right? The, uh, the attack in 9-11. I believe the number is just under 3,000 people died. 3,000 people died on 9-11. It's a terrible tragedy. The number would probably seem even larger to me uh, because my uncle was actually in Boston the day of 9-11. And he had a flight, the next flight out of uh, Boston, and he was going to be flying through New York, the very next one. And as you know what happens on this, uh, that terrible day, and so my uncle has to rent a car and drive from Massachusetts all the way down to Texas because there's obviously no flights. And the story would be completely different if my uncle had been on one of those flights, as would it be for you if one of your relatives was on the flight. But still, 3,000 people die. Almost 3,000 people. But, 2014. The number of people who died from alcohol-impaired driving incidents. Do you want to guess what that number is? The number of people who died in accidents because someone had a blood alcohol level over 0.08 was over 10,000 people. Over three times the amount of people who died on 9-11 died from drunk driving in our country. The total number of alcohol-related deaths in 2014 was over 80,000. Yet we think our biggest fear is a terrorist abroad. When what's really killing us is something right in here, inside of us. We talk about terrorists who don't live in America, but there is still terrorism in America. We saw what happened in Charleston. Church, having a Bible study. A racist man walks in and kills eight people. And since then, what, eight typically African-American churches? Eight African-American churches have burned to the ground since then? The same churches, one of the same churches that decades before the KKK burnt down was burnt down again today. The KKK, if we had the same language we use today, would have been called an extremist religious terrorist group. They're Christian people. That's what they say, the KKK. But since Charleston... Eight African-American churches have burnt to the ground. And the very church, Charleston, where the shooting took place was a church that almost uh, 200 years ago, it was burnt to the ground because it was the hub in Charleston of the slave community. When there was a slave rebellion, the ways that the masters punished the slaves is by burning that same church to the ground. And yet we think the biggest fear is somewhere out there, the biggest threat to our country. It's not abroad, but it's, it's, it's abroad. It's not in us. That's one of the biggest flaws that we have is we think the line of good and evil is between us and them when the line of good and evil is always right down the middle of us. Because we have the same problem that the Israelites have. We're always being pulled away from the very thing that's going to save us. When God shows up to deliver us, we say, ah, no, I'm good. That sounds stupid. Because at the heart of who we are as people is this weird mixture of dust and divinity. In the beginning, God created dust, breathed life into it, and that is where man and woman came from. And we still live in this weird concoction that we are both the breath of God, we are divine, the image of God is inside of us, but we are also dust, and you see that time and time again. When we are pulled away from the very thing that would save us. It's it's like the guy who who is living into the problem of being isolated and alone. And in the beginning, God said it's not good for man to be alone, and people still experience that over and over again. When you're alone and isolated, the world doesn't work the way it should. 
And so someone who needs community, they need friends, they need to live in community. When presented with the opportunity of people who are right in front of them, they say, ah, no, no, I'm good. That person's kind of weird. That person's a little bit off. And they say, no, I'm good. Or the person who says, God, would you provide for me? Would you give me my daily bread? And God shows up and gives you daily bread, but you say, ah, that's not enough. That's not the flavor of bread that I want. That's not the kind of food I like to eat. And again, we are like the woman who crosses her arms and says, this is just stupid. But luckily, God doesn't seem to give up when we do that. Uh, one of my favorite stories about my dad happened when I, uh, I was in high school. No, I'd just come back from my freshman year of college, and uh, I asked my dad if I could borrow his car. I didn't have a car at the time, and he says, yes, you can borrow a car, but be careful when you park in the garage. They had done something different with the garage, and so now I had to park at the farthest parking spot. He says, Luke, be really careful. It's a really sharp turn in there. So take your time. Don't rush into it. I said, dad, I'm fine. I'm in college. I know everything. I've got this world figured out. I am a genius. And so as you know, what's going to happen in the story, I come home late that evening and the, the radio is on. It's probably like Montel Jordan. This is how we do it in case you're wondering. And I'm, I'm pulling into the parking spot, and I'm just, this is how we do it. And I'm just, just jamming out. And I'm just, as I'm turning in, I hear this skirt. And I thought, oh, that's weird. Montel must have put a remix on the radio. And I'm turning in, and there's a scratch. And I, and I don't stop for some reason because I really think that's Montel doing a remix. And before I parked the car, my dad has run out of the garage door, and I didn't even realize he could move that fast, but he can. And he said, Luke, what are you doing? I said, Dad, what are you talking about? And he looks on the other side of the car, and there is this like racing stripe from the front quarter panel all the way to the back of the car that I had scratched as I pulled the car in. He said, Luke, what are you doing? I told you to be careful going into it. I said, Dad, I'm my bad. He goes, well, all right, well, tomorrow you're going to have to go fix this. I said, fine. And so I go inside, and I'm sitting down. I'm watching Sports Center, and it's, you know, the first episode has been through, and I'm repeating it again because that's what I did when I was a freshman in college. And, and it, it's been an hour or so. My dad says, Luke, come downstairs. And I'm weirded out, like, Dad, why do you want me to go to? And he says, let's go out to the garage. And I thought, my dad's going to try to fight me here or something. I don't know what he was going to do. <laughs> he says, come out here. And he pulls me to the other side of the car. He says, look at it. And I looked at it, and my dad had been out there for the last hour, and he buffed out the scratch in the car, the very scratch that I put in because I ignored his warning. Thanks, Dad. I appreciate it. That's what, Dad, that's what my dad did. That's what our Heavenly Father continues to do. If we can go back to the text, pick up in verse 24. This is God's response to Israel continually ignoring him. He says, it says this. God heard their groaning. He remembered his covenant with Abraham, with Isaac and Jacob. So he looked on the Israelites and was concerned about them. As Israel has stood there like this and says, I'm not into what you're selling. I'm not down for what you're calling us to do. God does four things. He hears, he remembers, he sees, and he cares. God hears, he remembers, he sees, he cares. Even when it seems like you don't hear anything, that resembles the voice of God, even when it seems like you can't hear any of the voice of God because you have turned your ears to all the things of the world, God still hears you. And when you can't remember a thing about the heart and the character of God because all the things that you've been focusing on have been the things of the world, God 
remembers. And when you haven't cared to take a moment to be present to God who is always around you, God is still here. And when you can't see anything but the things of the world because that's all you see, God sees you. God hears, he remembers, he sees, and he cares for you. Even when you have done this treatment to him and said, no, I'm good, I don't need what you're doing. And this is a good reminder for those of us who find ourselves in the role of Moses and we are trying to help others. And maybe you are called to that person in your life who you know needs someone to guide them out of whatever exodus they are in and you are trying to love and to serve and to be the hands and feet of Jesus to them and continue. They just do this number right here. You try to help and you give up your time and your effort and your energy and nothing seems to change. It reminds you that God, he hears, he remembers, he sees, and he cares even when you do that to him. So maybe that's exactly what you should do to others. Because we have a Heavenly Father who is continually picking up the messes we make. And so the story reminds us that you, even in your moments when you don't hear, remember, see, and care about God, God does that for you. You need to know that, but you also need to be aware of the fact that there is something inside of you that's pulling you off the right course. Just like Israel didn't go where God called them to go. Uh, a couple uh, a couple years ago, the Loves talked to me to doing a team triathlon with them. And so I had to do just the swim part. And so I was talking to a friend of mine who's a big triathlon person. And, and when I say a big triathlon, you know if you're a triathlon part, you're not really big. But you know what I'm saying. It's a metaphor. Go with me here. And so he was trying to explain to me there's a difference in swimming open water than closed water? I don't know what the other side of that, like like in a lake compared to in a pool, there's a big difference, he explained to me. And I didn't really think there would be a difference because it seems like there's only one thing you're supposed to do when you swim and that's not drowned, right? Like, you know what I'm saying? Like that seems to be like if, if you're running and you stop running, what happens? You sit down. Everyone likes to sit down. That's a good thing. If you're swimming and you stop swimming, you, you die. So it seems like it's very straightforward. Like there's only one thing you need to do when you're swimming is just stay afloat. But he says, no, there's a big difference in, in the pool than in the lake. And he says, when you're in the pool, when you're swimming, there are lines on the bottom and you can just watch that and it tells you where to go. Just follow the line. It's very straightforward. But when you're in the lake, most lakes don't have that. If you're swimming in the ocean, there's not a line at the bottom of the ocean. You have to do something about that because if you're swimming... Just like you normally would in the ocean, in a pool, in the ocean, what's going to happen is you're going to detour off because no one swims exactly straight. And so what you have to do when you swim in open water is you have to pull your head up and look to see where you should be going. Otherwise, your path will always go off course. And so if you're swimming from, say, Cuba to Miami, you need to look to see where you're going. Otherwise, you're going to end up in like Iceland. And obviously, no one wants to be there. The point's true in life. By ourselves, we will always be like that cart that has a broken wheel. We will always detour off. And if you don't have practices and disciplines and things in your life that refocus you on the God who hears you and remembers you and sees you and cares for you, you will always end up like the Israelites going off course. And in those times in your life when it is most stressful and most trying and most painful, those are times more than any other times it is most important because in those moments, more than anything, you need to realize that you can't trust often your own decision making. Because we have this propensity, just like the Israelites, to fold our arms and say, whatever God you are doing in my life, I don't want anything to do with it. We all have that. 
in our marriages, in our friendships, and our work always has a way of detouring off where it should be. And so you need to have these things in your life that focus you on who you are and what really matters. Otherwise, we always end up off course. Uh, one of those things that we do at Venture uh, is we gather around these tables and we break bread and we experience the blood of Jesus and the body of Christ that was broken and shed for us. One of the things that we do in this meal is reminds us of what is really essential. And what's essential for our story is not the things that we achieve, not what we accomplish. It's not the failures we have. The thing that dictates who we are is what happened for us on the cross and what that cross anticipates will happen eventually. So what we're going to do in a second is we're going to take this time to celebrate the Eucharist or communion as a way of saying this is where our life is supposed to be going and this is who we are supposed to be. Now, obviously, some of you have kids in here this morning and uh, there are a bunch of different options for what you can do. If you want your kids to participate, that's your choice. If you want them to sit and watch, that's great. But please don't forget that this is a great teaching opportunity for you and your kids. It's a great opportunity for you to follow this up with a conversation afterwards about what we do and why we do this. And so in a second, I'm going to pray, and I'm going to encourage you guys to make your way to one of these tables, and you will receive communion. So let's pray. God, we thank you that you are a God who even when we ignore what you're doing, that you continue to hear us, that you continue to remember us, that you see us and you care for us. We thank you for the good news of what that is. And help us to learn to live into that and believe that that story is true and to believe that it is enough for us. And help us to be aware of the fact that we have a way of detouring off the course you've called us to go. And that you show up to save us and deliver us. And we often want to turn from what you call us to. And just like the Israelites, when you send them a deliverer, you send them Moses, they reject it. And help us to be aware of the way that we reject your work in our lives. Help us to be aware of the way that we reject the way that you continually try to save us. God, as we go to this table, help us to fix our eyes and our gaze upon you. And help us to remember the body that was broken, the blood that was shed, and the life that that gives us. We pray this in your name. Amen.